Welcome to U-Turn, conversations with interesting people who were on one career path but ended up somewhere entirely different. I'm your host, Eric Jorgensen. In this episode, I'm talking with Don Melton. Don is internet famous for a few things, probably most so for his time at Apple, during which he led the team that would create the Safari web browser. Perhaps you've heard of it. Since retiring from Apple in 2012 as Director of Internet Technologies, Don has stayed busy working obsessively on an open-source set of scripts for transcoding video and appearing on various podcasts, most notably Guy English and Renee Ritchie's show Debug, uh, which I can't recommend enough for anyone who is a programmer who has even a passing interest in programming. He's been on a bunch of episodes of that show. He also hosts a, his own podcast uh, every so often for iMore called Melton. Thanks for being on the show, Don. Sure. Love it. Great. <laughs> did I miss anything? Did I screw up anything? No, that's major? It. No, no, that's it. Perfect. Uh, you know, I always worry about when people first do this because the first time I got on, uh, I think Guy's uh, show, Guy English's show, and I, I gave him a hard time about it afterwards. So, because he was like sweating it or something. So, <laughs> because you're an internet famous celebrity, obviously. I, I had no idea, but uh, Guy and I have known each other and talked to each other so many times, not only on various shows, but in person. And, you know, he, the guy, you know, he's dating someone I hired before right now. So, Oh really? I didn't know that. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, uh, so, and he, when he's in the area, sometimes he comes by and, uh, we, uh, we polish off uh, a bottle, you know, and have a good lunch and whatever like that. He's a good guy. As one should. Same thing with Renee. Renee's Renee is actually, you know, you mentioned him uh, on IMR. Renee's the one who does all the hard work. You know, he does all the recording, editing, and everything else like that. You Much just like show up and talk, do, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Just, this is, you know, and it, here's what's funny: is you were talking about those various shows, and I was thinking to myself, "Where's my uh, BB Edit window with all my notes for the podcast?" And I thought, "Well, what the hell do I need notes for?" I mean, Eric's just gonna. <laughs> I'm just going to pepper you with questions. And actually, I have my Sublime Text uh, little markdown uh, thing of notes right here. So hopefully it will keep us on track and and get going. But I've started every single show I've done so far with, I think, pretty good results by asking two basic questions. Where did you grow up and what did your parents do for a living? We've gotten lots of really interesting answers. So there you go. That's what I want to start with. Where did I grow up? I uh, I was actually not born in California. I was born in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. And the people I grew up with, Arkies, people from Arkansas, they always said Missouri, never Missouri. That's very <laughs> important. But anyway, I grew up in California uh, in uh, what I lovingly refer to now as the leg pit of California, uh, the Imperial Valley. Uh, and it was a great place to grow up uh, because it was not, you know, it built character. Uh, it was just a hellhole. I mean... I think the uh, we had one town in the valley that would vie with Death Valley and Needles for being the hottest place in the United States every year. I mean, oh. it was just it was just awful. Um, but it was a big uh, agricultural community, uh, and uh, near the border, uh, near Mexicali uh, or Mexicali, uh, and um, a lot of. Um, uh, a lot of people from the Midwest who came in various Dust Bowl migrations there, uh, a lot of uh, Latinos coming across the border there, uh, and uh, a lot of drugs. I would find out about this later on when I grew up. It was uh, one of the 
the big tra uh, drug trafficking uh, uh, areas in the California too. Not only did you you get your lettuce and your asparagus and your carrots there, you know that's where you went to get your grass and your heroin, oh, and, okay, uh, everything else like that. Uh, I think now it has probably uh, one of the, it's one of the highest areas of unemployment uh, in the country. I'm surprised Donald Trump isn't campaigning there. Uh, it usually hovers between 20 and 25% unemployment. So it's, a uh, it's a tough place to, it's a tough place to live and to be. Um, and I'm just very happy to be a Northern Californian now after growing up down there. Well, I think I've actually now heard of the area because the Salton Sea is receding quite a bit, I believe, if I remember yeah, correctly. A, of course it is. It's, it's drying up. It's a big cesspool. I mean, I, I hear people going to, uh, Nyland or uh, the Coachella Music Festival, and they think the area is is quite quaint and lovely. And it's like, dude, go there in July. You know, just don't don't talk to me about that place. I had to actually talk some friends uh, in the area up here in the Bay Area who were going to go down there and, and vacation last summer. And it was like, what are you crazy? <laughs> During the summer too. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know the the county seat, the big city, El Centro. Uh, the local chamber of commerce has a slogan where the sun spends the winter, but unfortunately it's there in the summer too. And in the summer it's pissed. I mean, it's just, it's not a good place to be. And what's funny about being in Northern California, you know, I lived in Northern, Northern California. Oh, 27, 28 years or more now. And I walk around everywhere with like a hoodie on, you know, a jacket. And my wife even needled me the other day when we were out walking and it was, I don't know, it was probably 75 degrees out. And I had my hoodie on and pulled up over my head, you know, to cover my baseball cap and stuff. And it's like, aren't you hot in that? You're making me hot. And I'm like, that, that's not hot to me. <laughs> because you survived the uh, the area that you grew up. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, and I don't mind it being, you know, cold or cool up here. In fact, it's just this never-ending grin on my face. <laughs> I am jealous. I, I do love Northern California, and I'm, you know, I, I'm in Minnesota and Minneapolis, and uh, we have the temperature extremes, and I like the consistency of Northern California in comparison. But how did you end up in this area of California after uh, being in Missouri or being from Missouri, as they say? Why'd you guys move out there? Uh, work. My dad needed work. He, he came, um, he was a veteran. Uh, my father was a veteran of the Korean war. He was a crew chief on airplanes, uh, fixed, uh, uh, DC threes and things like that. Old crappers in, uh, that were used by, uh, the army air corps. Um, and, uh, he was actually trained as a carpenter. I learned a lot of carpentry uh, growing up from my dad, and I never applied anymore because, oh, God, do I hate carpentry. <laughs> uh, and, um, I mean, I know the difference between a crosscut saw and a rip saw and, you know, what kind of hammer you're supposed to pick up to take a nail out or pound something or, you know, what the difference between a 16-penny and a 20-penny nail and all that crap. And I don't care. Uh, but uh, he... Um, after coming back from the war and running um, uh, liquor illegally for a little bit to make some uh, some money, I 
I always wondered when uh, I was older and I got my first car with my dad and he helped me test drive it. He did a bootlegger's turn in it. And what is I that? Wonder, yeah, I, well, it's, you do a 180 on a, on a street. Oh, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. And Avoiding wonder, the fuzz. Well, how, how did you learn that? I never found out when I was a teenager. I, I never found out until I, I was in my early 20s. And it's because <laughs> he was a bootlegger. <laughs> uh, so, you, you know, he was running uh, liquor across the state line to, you know, uh, moonshine. Void taxes, make some spare change because he, he just couldn't get enough work. And... Um, uh, boy, did he know how to drive. Uh, so, uh, I, t- I told him, you know, cause he was a real law abiding citizen when I knew him growing up and everything. And I, I, I told him, you know, when I got older, I said, dad, that's a federal crime. You <laughs> know, <laughs> I was like, what were you thinking? It's like, do you remember the conversation we had, you know, a few weeks ago about you doing something stupid? How old were you again? I was like, oh, yeah, got it. <laughs> so, um, uh, and uh, my my parents grew up very, very poor. Um, and they came out to the Imperial Valley uh, to get work because we had other relatives who'd, who'd struck out there and, you know, figured out a way to pick the worst place in California to live. Uh, and what kind and of work so was it out there that they were doing? Was it agricultural or? Agricultural work. Uh, my dad was a... Um, uh, well, he was doing some construction and carpentry work, but he, uh, he was what's called a Sanjero, uh, which is a Latino expression. It basically means a ditch writer. Uh, and because the Imperial Valley, the agricultural community lives and dies by irrigation water from, uh, the Colorado river that comes, uh, West along, uh, the Mexican border, in the All-American Canal and flows north uh, and eventually uh, winds up in the Salton uh, Sea as sewer water, which is why I've never thought much of the Salton Sea because I know what's actually in there. And it's, it's drainage. It's everything yeah, it's else. Drainage. It's drainage. It's not good. In fact, it's quite toxic and dangerous. Don't you ever get the chance to swim there? Don't. So don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, okay. And, and so he worked his way up through uh, uh, the irrigation district and until when he had to retire for medical reasons. Uh, he was uh, one of the, I think, the three superintendents over the various divisions there. Okay. So he managed to, to work his way up a little bit and kind of grow, make a career out of it at least. Yeah, yeah. From being impoverished to, you know, being middle class. Uh, I mean, that was, which was actually pretty good in Imperial Valley. I mean, we actually had you know, a house and everything else like that. So, and I always thought, um, growing up, my sister and I always thought, uh, we always thought we were well off because we, we were very fortunate. Uh, we did, we were better off than our relatives who had many more kids in the family. Um, and we just thought we, you know, the whole family liked to eat beans. We didn't know that <laughs> they had to, yeah, we That's didn't know there was. they had to. So, um, and uh, uh, I, I never felt I never felt like I was shortchanged because I always knew my parents loved me and my family loved me and they encouraged me. My parents encouraged me uh, uh, with my art very early on, getting me art lessons and, and encouraging me to draw when they found out I could draw. 
um, my mom, I guess it was one day when I was like four or five years old, uh, to keep me amused, she, uh, gave me a big sheet of paper and an actual pencil this time, you know, uh, risking the chance that I might gouge an eye out. Oh, sure. Or stab somebody in the neck or something. You never know. It's sort of a crayon and set some things on the table and said, uh, uh, draw those. And I did. And they pretty much looked like what she said on the table. And she basically showed it to my dad and my sister and everybody else. I was like, how can he do that? And I was like, well, that's what it looked like to me. <laughs> so, so I always had uh, an ability to draw what I could see from as far back as I could remember. In fact, I don't even remember that happening very well. I, I had to get told this story by my sister to, to get it reinforced. And so I'd love to say that this was a skill that I slaved years and years over mastering, but it's just like that was the roll of the dice. That's the, you know, if I was going to show up to Professor X's house and get in the mansion with the rest of the mutants, I'd be the guy in the corner with a pencil because that was my mutant ability. <laughs> Could always do it. And uh, it was funny uh, when I went to school, I mean, for the first time I never went to kindergarten, I went to first grade. And uh, uh, I remember we got this assignment. It was like two weeks in and uh, I guess Halloween was coming up and we were supposed to draw a pumpkin. And so I already sat down and like, you know, drew a pumpkin and I look around and there were these poor beggars, you know, they couldn't even, let alone draw a circle, you know, they couldn't. <laughs> They couldn't even draw anything that was enclosed. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, okay. Then I understood, because people were telling me, oh, you're really good at this. You're really, and I just, you know, just blew them off, like, because it was my mom and dad. And of course they'd say nice things to me or whatever. And I, I didn't realize I could, I could do something. Then. And that's when I got in. And my sister encouraged this because uh, she had some, drawing talent, but her real talent was, was storytelling and writing. She's just always been a marvelous storyteller. We would always, you know, take blocks and this is before we could even afford Legos. There was these plastic blocks. We'd put them together into characters and creatures and, you know, I would build them and she would tell the fantastic stories about them. And so we were a natural, uh, combination, uh, sort of an incubator for, being comic book geeks. And so we started collecting comic books early on and I'd always wanted to be a comic strip or a comic book artist, which is what I really tried to be when I was a kid. Well, that's what I was going to ask then is, so you're really good at drawing and, and art. Do you start thinking then about career, like kind of the, what do you want to be when you grow up thing? Oh, I knew by the time I was seven years old, I was going to be a comic strip, a comic strip artist. And, uh, it really changed by the time I was about, 12. No, it's a comic book artist, you know, because I wanted to be uh, Jack, Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko or Neil Adams or, you know, Jim Steranko or someone like that. Uh, and uh, my sister and our uh, sister and I started collecting comics. And um, even there in the valley, when we're stuck in the valley, when she got back from Vietnam, my sister is eight and a half years older than me. So uh, when she got back from Vietnam, uh, I think we went to our first Comic Con. I can't remember. Uh, this is the original San Diego Comic-Con. I can't remember. I, I never went to the first one. I think there's like only a couple of dozen people who did. But I think it was the second or 
uh, third Comic Con I actually attended in San Diego. Uh, you know, and I remember going there a few weeks before uh, and going into Sheldorf's bookstore. If there are any comic book geeks listening to this, they'll know who Sheldorf is. And um, uh, he's the guy who um, uh, founded uh, Comic Con and uh, uh, collating mimeographed Comic Con. Uh, programs in the back of his bookstore, you know, cause I was, a, um, I don't know. I was, I was like uh, 13 or 14 there. Then, you know, snotty notes, skinny kid, <laughs> of course, put me to work. And who knew that it was going to grow into this media extravaganza and whatever, but it was just, you know, it was just a bunch of people who loved comic books then. And you have to remember this was in the early seventies. So there had not been the explosion of underground comics and, everything else like that. Sure. Uh, but it was still kind of a subculture at the time oh, yeah, itself. Yeah. Like the Ooh, whole thing there was, were, there were a lot of people not getting laid. You know? <laughs> so there was some quality nerdetry there. So, so that was your first kind of thing you got paid for like a little part-time job working in the comic book store um, or something like that. My sister's store, I get, I get paid for it. Her, her, we couldn't have a, a comic book store in, in the Imperial Valley because there weren't enough nerds there. But she had a used bookstore, and I started working in that. And that was my first paid job. Uh, and I had, I've had just a ton of really incredibly bad jobs over the years to get through school and everything else. You know, I've been janitor. I've washed airplanes. I've done gardening and I'm allergic to everything. So the fact that I did gardening is just really uh, stupid. So uh, how did you end up getting into technology then given all these terrible jobs and an interest in comic books? Cause you wouldn't necessarily draw a connection between the two. You, w- you wouldn't think so, but y- you'd be surprised the number of geeks. Uh, well, that's a good point. Simple, <laughs> simple, similar background uh, to that. Um, and I also had a, um, a sideline for a while. I got into the whole religion thing. Uh, there was a whole religious phase, uh, roller stuff, and I'm I, I, and we're talking serious roller stuff here. I mean, we're we're not talking uh, Anglicans or Methodists or something like that. We're talking assemblies of God, uh, speaking in tongues. Oh wow! You know, Jericho marches, everything just short of handling snakes. Um, and so I, I I did that thing, and I. What actually got me out of the valley, and at, at the time, by the way, when I left, I was actually, um, I'd actually got a real paying job as an artist. I was like uh, the editorial art department. I was the cartoonist and artist and illustrator at the local newspaper, the Imperial Valley Press. But I had this religious bent going on the side, and I thought it was my destiny to be a minister. So I, uh, and my dad just, uh, he almost interceded, but he thought, he told me later, he said, he'll come to his senses. And I did. Um, he finally got used to me making a living being a cartoonist, which he never thought that would amount to anything, even though he let me do it and encouragement, encouraged me, but he never thought much about the religion business. And, uh, but I went off to school in, uh, in the Orange County area to a, uh, a school there. And, and I learned that that was not my calling. Uh, and, but I also got a job at the Orange County register 
And uh, it was while I was at the Orange County Register playing with their new front-end uh, computer system, computer typesetting system. They were just transitioning from hot type to cold type. Do you know what that means? No, that is before my time. Okay, hot type is uh, the way they used to make uh, print newspapers back in the olden days uh, was with uh, a technology called letterpress. Which I do know about a little bit. <clears throat> yes, and but the, the way that worked is you basically had um, – uh, you <laughs> you really had to do it hard, hard back in the old days. You had to set all the type and all the lines by hand and do these couple of reverse casts and then form them around in a circle and put them on the plates. And you actually had uh, ink sticking to raised bumps on these cylinders, and that was the letterpress. And it was called hot type because the, the big linotype machines were, you know, they melted the lead to... Uh, to get those on the presses. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So they were, what they were trans, uh, they were transitioning to what's called cold type or offset printing, where you basically have a, a flat cylinder that's chemically uh, treated to hold the ink in certain places, right? And, and you can actually, the good thing about this is you can get uh, much finer images and you can run the presses a lot faster. Right. Uh, and it's also a lot less messy, noisy, and not that they cared about this back then, but uh, a lot less polluting. You know, this was a libertarian newspaper. This is, you know, Republican Orange County. And, you know, where back when I started to work there, they weren't allowed to, in the newspaper, describe something as a public school. It had to be described as a tax-supported school. <laughs> so... That's the, the so anyway, I got a job there, and my career in the ministry uh, or my calling in the ministry was going nowhere. And we had got this front end system that I started playing with, and I didn't realize I was hacking on it, but what I was doing was hacking on it and trying to figure out how it worked to to use the typesetting system to actually draw things because I was, you know, uh, I. I was the art department for a while. We finally added on other people. But I decided, you know, I'm going to get into this computer graphics thing. And um, so I convinced my dad to loan me money, which is always a bad thing, uh, to, to buy a computer. I conv You know, I sold him on this whole idea. So this was about... 1980, I guess. What was the machine? Do you remember? I'm sure uh, you remember. Oh, sure, sure. It was a, it was a Apple II, Apple II Plus. This, the Plus had just came out the month before. You know, it wasn't integer basic anymore. It was cutting edge Apple soft basic in the ROMs. Uh, the two Plus had just came out, and I cherried it out. I mean, you know, 48K. Oh, my gosh. Two... <laughs> Clingy, noisy disk drives and a uh, really ugly monitor and everything else. And I thought, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm going to be doing the big stuff here, big graphics. And uh, I had the machine for about <clears throat> two weeks and I thought, oh my God, I've made the biggest mistake of my life. And um, I didn't know how I was going to pay my dad back or tell him, which was w much worse. Uh, and what had your plan been? You thought that you could maybe, how were you going to make, make any money sure. at all with this thing? 
I didn't have any damn sense, you know. It's like, <laughs> kids, right? Yeah, kids these days. I, I was, uh, I was, was my son's age now. Is uh, uh, I was, I think, it was about twenty-five years old, then. and um, uh, and so it, it languished, you know, in my room and whatever until I got uh, sick one three-day weekend. I can't remember whether it was Memorial Day or Labor Day or whatever it was, and. Um, I didn't have anything to do except cough on my roommates and they didn't want me anywhere near them. So I was sitting at my desk and I had the computer there and I was playing video games with it and stuff, you know, because, hey, it was a computer and you could play games with it. But uh, the AppleSoft basic manual was sitting at my desk for a long time and I finally cracked it open and I thought, well, this looks interesting, you know, with my head pounding and everything else. Um and I taught myself to program in basic on uh, starting Saturday morning. Sunday morning, I bombed one of my programs into the machine language monitor and, you know, ooh, what are all these funny numbers with letters in them? And, you know, taught myself hexadecimal. And then uh, by Monday, I was writing machine codes, putting in data statements, and I figured out how to call it from basic so I could execute subroutines. See, I I just thought that everybody did this with their computers, and I just hadn't got around to doing it. <laughs> Which you was know, not I, the case at all for people listening. No, no. <laughs> Which was not the case. I didn't know that that was not something you were supposed to do on your own. And, uh, and I just started playing with it uh, for a while and writing more and more complex programs. And I finally got a few higher-level languages. I finally got it in assembler which, boy, was a real time saver uh, from writing straight machine code. They write machine code on a, in a, on a sheet of paper and then you know type it into the data statement. So for people who don't know, machine code is about the lowest thing that humans can write in, in, in terms of talking to a computer. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Well, yeah. This, was, this was a high-level machine, though, Eric. I mean, I didn't have... <laughs> I didn't have to flip switches for each. Right, you know, that's true. But it's all relative. I each, mean, compared, yeah, it's all relative. compared yeah, then to then to assembly, which is a level up from there, the level higher. Um, and I, then I, I got a, then I got a Pascal compiler, which you know was just. I thought, I thought I was in the Star Trek future when I got that Pascal uh, compiler and the runtime, and that was all fun. And then I got a fourth compiler and taught myself. Four. Fourth was easy because. If you learn, if you teach yourself machine code and assembler, RPN, or reverse Polish notation, and fourth, it's like, you know, so you know, you know how to use the stack, you know, you know how to do that kind of stuff, and you had to use the stack and a few other tricks on the Apple II because it was the damn thing only had three registers. I mean, it had the X, the Y, and the accumulator, and you couldn't move directly from the X and the Y register. I, I used to joke that it was the world's first RISC processor, the reduced instruction set uh, computer. So I, I went for about oh, several months with that, and I ran into an old friend of mine who was uh, at another college. He transferred out uh, to one of the heathen colleges, uh, as we would say in the religious school, uh, to uh, finish his degree. And uh, we were eating lunch, and he told me he was taking a computer programming class. I was like, wow, that is so, you know, because I didn't know anything. That is so cool. Do you have one of your books with you? And he hauled out one of his books. He was telling me how tough the class was and uh, everything. And he uh, he was struggling with some stuff. And I read through a bunch of the lessons, and I looked at some of the problems he was working on. 
And that's when it hit me, you know, it was like going, it was like being in first grade and watching other people trying to draw a pumpkin. It's the same thing. It was like, oh my God, this man cannot write a for loop to save his life. Okay. And all the examples in the book were just like simple things. And then I thought to myself, hmm, there may, <laughs> there might be something in this for me. And I, from that point on, I took it really seriously. I thought, okay, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to use this graphics thing and I'm going to go that route. So I'm and, trying to figure out how, how do you make this connection between, or not that you were making a connection, but you're an artist and all of a sudden you just appear, apparently are a programming savant. Like those two things don't seem to go together to me on the outside, but maybe they do. I, I don't know. I mean, do you see the I've connection? I've a lot there? of other people like that. Really? I, yeah. I want to... I hired a guy on the WebKit team. He could have he could have written my life story. The same damn thing. So um, now that's that, I'm not trying to say this to talk about how brilliant I am. I, frankly, I was fairly stupid, and uh, I really regret not going through formal training because not knowing data structures, not knowing algorithms. You know, I did a lot of stupid things early on. And Google because, probably wouldn't hire you. You probably wouldn't pass the Google test. Oh, I, I couldn't get hired by Google now. <laughs> like, I don't care. Uh, you know, they want the sheepskin, and that's never been my thing. I mean, I didn't complete my college degree anyway. Uh, it probably cost, me, uh, probably cost me 10 grand a year in salary in my, uh, my first programming job. So what was that then? I assume that that's what happened next when you realized well, this is something you could do? Well, eventually I got out of uh, Orange County. After I did finally get paid for a programming job, I, I, I did get paid for a programming job. Uh, uh, 50 bucks, that was the first uh, money I ever, ooh, big money. <laughs> but uh, I decided that if I'm ever going to make a go of the geek thing, I've got to get up to the Bay Area. I've got to get up to Silicon Valley. And so I made it a point to um, leave the Orange County Register after almost eight years. I was there almost eight years. I can't believe it. And I went to uh, the Murky News, uh, San Jose Mercury News um, in San Jose, California. And uh, uh, I was their computer graphics specialist training their team and everything computer graphics like i was some kind of expert and what you what year was this when you did that move oh shit i was afraid you were gonna ask me that sorry uh, early uh, 80s well mid 80s no, maybe no 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 this was because uh, this was the late 80s when i did this so this would have been no maybe it's the mid 80s damn let's see i got married 90 i gotta work back this is probably i'm gonna guess 87 and what did this computer graphics gig consist of back in approximately 1987? Like, what types of things were they doing at the at the Mercury? Oh, uh, basically, we had uh, a stack of laser writers, and uh, uh, which I'd learned to use before, and uh, MacDraw, and I was doing uh, information graphics in MacDraw and printing out the stuff with a laser writer doing color separations as separate drawings with MacDraw. This is before any software really existed for that kind of thing. So really before desktop publishing took, took right. off, like maybe kind of the start of that? Yeah. We, we'd actually, uh, actually conned somebody from Adobe uh, to come over and give us a preview 
of Adobe Illustrator, uh, which after they gave us the demo on uh, one of our machines, uh, is a terrible thing to say, but I can, having worked on Illustrator since then, um, uh, after they did the demo and they copied my machine, I said, oh, here, I'll delete it for you. And I motioned to the other two artists while I was uh, not to touch the machine uh, while I took the guys out. And when I raced back inside, I undeleted it. <laughs> so uh, I could learn uh, Illustrator with a late beta there. Oh, and it was sneaky. several years later, I wound up uh, going to uh, Adobe and I told Mike Schuster, the, you know, the father of Adobe Illustrator, he's the guy who created it, that story. And he, he thought it was hysterical. <laughs> so people were doing that kind of stuff uh, all the time back then. That's how, you know, that's how you earned your chops by being a hacker. Oh, sure. So, um, and when I, when I was in Orange County, you know, we did a lot of hacking back then, you know, on the mouse hole and, uh, uh, there were wares boards and all sorts of evil things. And some people who got really big positions at important companies later on, you know, snar- started as, uh, snotty nosed hackers down in, uh, Orange County or in the Bay area. It's sure. a business, Eric. It's a weird business. It is a weird business. And that, that era, I mean, I'm, I'm, I didn't admit this up front, but I will admit it now because everybody who knows me already knows is I'm a hardcore Apple geek and have been my whole life. My grandparents had the original Macintosh. We got our first Mac in 93. So I'm fairly familiar with the history. And it is funny how many people were kind of, like you said, kind of scruffy hacker types back then. Like it was just, it was the culture that spawned all these big companies. They all came out of that. And it's, it's fascinating. And so apparently you were at least a little bit of a, a part of that. <laughs> a little bit. Undeleting uh, Illustrator. I, was, I mean, that that's, uh, yeah, I don't know if the higher ups of Adobe would have loved that back then, but it's good to hear that Mike was okay with it. <laughs> yeah, he thought it was funny. Uh, and boy, uh, it was a, uh, uh, it was a delight working with him. He was one of the, anyway, uh, so uh, Schuster uh, was a great guy to, uh, work with as are, uh, were many of my heroes who I get to work with later on, like uh, Andy Herzfeld. Uh, when I finally uh, made the trip around, the last company I worked at before Apple was a little startup uh, uh, easel, and Andy was there, and it was just a delight to work with him. Um, but uh, you know, I've worked at a lot of. I've been thrown out of a lot of really good companies. I've worked. It's. <laughs> Uh, I worked at Sun, um, uh, Macromedia back when they were called Macromind, Adobe, uh, Netscape, and then AOL Netscape and a few other smaller companies and, um, eventually retired from Apple. Well, Netscape was kind of the place where you got, you got kind of into maybe the niche that would end up defining the end of your, your working career at Apple, which is the browser, right? Would you say that's fair to say? Yeah. And uh, I, we're kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but that's totally fine. Uh, from the the newspaper business, you eventually get into programming more, right? And then at some point, you become a, a manager. Or was that happening while you were at Netscape? What was your job when you first got to Netscape? Uh, my first job at Netscape was as an engineer because I'd done the programming okay. thing at Adobe. And I did just about everything wrong and stupid you could do as a manager at Adobe. And, uh, cause they had promoted me and I did not want to be a manager again. Ah, so you're and one of those lad- people who was promoted up, but probably shouldn't have been at the time cause you didn't have the skill set. 
I, and you know, they weren't really training for that. And, uh, and I just had a lot of challenges. Uh, I learned a lot in that process. I didn't realize it until later on, but it made me very, both very sympathetic and very hard on new managers that would work for me later on. Um, because, uh, I took the role of being a new manager very, very seriously after that. But I was at Netscape for probably only, uh, I gotta say less than nine months, maybe even six months before they kicked me upstairs to management again. And I did the job there because I didn't want some knucklehead to become our manager. What did you uh, roll into your skill set by, or what did you learned uh, since your time at Adobe that didn't go so well that made you okay with being bumped up? Or maybe you didn't feel like you had a choice, but I didn't have a choice at the time. It was either that or, uh, or what I wanted to do was I decided to get into management for the right reason. There, it wasn't to help my career. I got into management to look after my teammates which is a noble reason to do it, I think. Sure, I think so too. <laughs> and so, uh, and what I wanted to do was how can I make their lives better? It wasn't like, you know, when someone came to me years later when I was at other companies or Apple, and I sensed they wanted to be a manager because they wanted to put their hands on the wheel. You know, that is a certain kind of ambition uh, that I understand and it's a certain kind of motivation. But if you're going to be successful uh, at it, you're not going to be the nurturing kind of manager ever. If that's your, if you think management is about uh, power, directing things, it's totally not. Management is about responsibility. Um, and you're probably and not going to be very uh, um, what would be the word popular with your team if you're the the power hungry type or I mean people can see through that I think pretty quickly when they know that you're somebody's a climber. Yes, they can see that uh, through that very quickly. But I also learned later on, it's not your job to be popular with your team either. Right. It's oh, that's fair to say. Be, maybe be respected. <laughs> you're not going to be respected if you're the climber type. And they may yes. not like you, but they might at least respect you if you're looking out for their best interest and trying to make them as good at their jobs and as equipped to do their jobs as you can. Exactly. And so, uh, because, you know, as I always, uh, described, uh, other people, like when you take this job, it's like what you're, what you're doing is, uh, you're electing to stand at the back end of the elephant. Right. <laughs> and you know, that's the, it, and it's going to have to hit you before it hits anybody else. Uh, and that's your job. And, uh, it is not, um, it is not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, later on, after I became, I forget, the fourth level manager or something at Apple, um, and we would find a person who wanted to move up, we thought was ready for that. I would have the conversation with them. And uh, uh, one of the things uh, I always ask people, I said, you know, when they were thinking about doing this, for a living, you know, leading a team and leading a group. I'd always ask, how did you sleep last night? And they would say, fine. You know, I slept fine. I said, well, good. Cause that's going to be the last time that happens. You take this job. Um, uh, cause they don't pay you to sleep, sleep well at night. They pay you to worry about the big things and the, the team wide yeah. problems, the stuff that the engineers and the line level don't have to worry about. Yeah. It's like, you you know, remember, 
yeah, I'm going to give you this team of people, right? What are you responsible for? And I said, well, I'm responsible for leading, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. You're responsible for everything they do. If they f*** up, guess who I'm going to blame? You getting it now? <laughs> oh, right, Gramps. Got it. And if they could, if they could deal with that... And that's really what it is, because that's you know certainly the way it works uh, in any organization. Because they're you know, it's basically leaning into a punch. Um, and if you're lucky, what you can do is you can not only tolerate those kind of hits, but you can make the people that work for you. You can give them opportunities to be even better. You can, you can take them up so they can do that kind of job too. Uh, and that, that was one of uh, my last delights when I left, when I retired, was being able to see a few people, a few more people do that. Because I, by the time I, I left Apple, I mean, it had been years before uh, since I had written code. I mean, you, that's the other thing is if you're, if you're going to do the management thing and really take it seriously and certainly be a multi-level manager, you can't write code anymore. It's just not, it's just not practical. You're not doing your job if you're writing code. Right. Cause it's not really your job anymore at all. And right. So you must've done okay with it. Your second time around at Netscape being responsible for people. And you're involved in browser technology and eventually AOL buys Netscape and, and all that happened. How did you end up at Apple and, and how did they find you? Uh, it was a sabbatical. Uh, Netscape, uh, when we got acquired, AOL promised to honor the sabbatical program. And so I'd been there long enough. I think it was four years, three years, something like that. So I was eligible for my sabbatical. Uh, and I took it it was like a six week sabbatical and I came back and I just hated my job. I just realized after being away for six weeks, how much it all sucked. (laughs) (laughs) And I was pretty much, uh, driving a fork into my leg every day to show up to work. And I was like, this is no way to live your life done. So I told my, told my wife, I, I I said, you know, I got to change and, uh, She'd already sense that she she knows when you know I'm not happy or something like that. Wives usually do; they're good at yeah. that. Uh, significant others are much much sharper than you give them credit for, and so uh, much more perceptive. And so, um, a long uh, and I I lost an engineer about six months prior, and just almost on cue, he called me and said, "Gramps, we're." We're we're desperate to get some management over here at the startup ad, and I was like, "What in the hell are you calling me for?" Then it's like <laughs> it's like you, you guys must be really bad off, uh, and so um, scraping the bottom of the barrel. And uh, so I talked to him for a while, and I went over and talked to the company, and it was really hard to turn. I mean, their business plan at Easelwood just didn't make any damn sense. Uh, I got to tell you right now, but it was, I, my boss would be Bud Tribble. Oh, sure. Mac geek. Yeah. He was on the Mac team, right? Yeah. He led the Mac team. Yes. Yep. (laughs) 
And, you know, my boss would be Bud Triple. Andy Hertzfeld founded this company I'd be going to. And one of the guys who would work for me would be Darren freaking Adler, the head of the Blue Meanies himself. <laughs> um, and I got to tell you, the hardest interview I ever did in my life was actually not the one with Bud and Andy. Andy was easy. He was like a teddy bear. We just talked geeky old time stuff. No, it was the interview with Darren. Good God, he was <laughs> he was tough. Uh, but he gave me a thumbs up, so they they hired me as the director of engineering. And uh, boy, that was an experience. And basically, for the next um, the next eight or nine months, I just didn't sleep. <laughs> it's like, I was at that startup all the time. Oh God! Wow. Okay. <laughs> and. Uh, and even as hard as we were, I mean, I, I got the thing accomplished that Bud wanted me to accomplish, which was to get Nautilus out the door uh, and into customers' hands. Nautilus was our product, a, a file, one of our products, a, a file manager for Linux, a Linux desktop. Okay. And uh, we got it done. And, uh, and the very next day after we got it out, we laid off half the company. Uh, uh, were you a part of the layoffs or were you one of the people responsible for doing the laying off? Being that you were management at the time, I was I was one of the people responsible for laying off. But it's funny how that happened. Uh, so uh, me and the other uh, director of engineering at the time, he, he a good friend of mine, Ken Kishinda, uh brilliant man. Um, I remember showing it to work. Uh, I guess it was Friday morning early, you know, right there across from the Krispy Kreme donuts in Mountain View. That's where our offices were. Uh, and uh, Ken met me outside and I was like, Ken, what in the hell are you doing outside? And he's, and he was like, they're doing it. They're pulling the plug. And I was like, what, what do you need your coffee? What? <laughs> so I went inside and they actually wanted us to come inside. We went to the boardroom and the entire board was there. Bud was there. Andy, uh, Bart DeCrim, you know, all the founders. And they said, you know, we we ran out of money. And it was like, why are we getting this software out? I thought you guys were supposed to find us some money. It's like, that's why we've been working our asses off. And they said, well, <coughs> we're going to consider leaving the doors open, but only if you two guys stay. And I was like, well, thanks a lot for <laughs> thinking of... <laughs> thinking so highly of Ken and I, but, uh, and they said that, you know, they were, they were basically not going to pay themselves. And I said, yeah, but can Ken and I get paid? Cause I've got a mortgage <laughs> to in a, like a week and a half. Uh, and they said, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll pay you. And, uh, and then they said, they, these are the people we're thinking about laying off. Uh, and they showed us the list and Ken and I just did a simultaneous facepalm. I said, okay, one more condition to us doing this and sticking around is we get to decide who's in and who's out. Because I, I said, I'll look at the list. I said, this is a terrible list. <laughs> one uh, of those classic I upper said, management things where they don't really yeah, know yeah. what's going on and who should be there and who shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, uh, I said, tell me what your vision for the company is going forward now. What do you want us to try to do? Ken and I will go figure out who stays and who goes. 
So uh, they told us, and Ken and I went off to uh, uh, some little Japanese restaurant, hole-in-the-wall place, and and decided everybody's fate on the back of several uh, napkins uh, there in Mountain View. Wow. And, and it was, uh, you don't ever want to do this, Eric. <sighs> yeah, I believe it. That sounds rough. Yeah, so it was uh, it was pretty awful. I mean, one of the people I had to lay off was one of the people I convinced to leave Netscape, oh, come no. to this company, yeah. and use equity. And I was going to have to lay them off. Uh, another was an old friend of mine, but you know, superfluous. And um, it was just it was just not good. And so uh, that gave us some runway, but you know it was like uh, four months later, and we were out of we were out of juice. So I asked. I knew we were like going under, and Bud knew we were going under. Um, and so I asked Bud. And I was like, uh, "Hey, do you still know anybody at Apple?" Because <laughs> I I needed a job, and uh, my wife really didn't want me around at home for the summer. Oh sure. Plus that mortgage, you know, the pesky yeah, thing. Yeah, the mortgage. Um, and so. Uh, he said, funny, you should mention that because there's some guys over there who want to talk to you. And uh, uh, after talking to one set of the wrong people, the guy I found out that he meant that wanted to talk to me was Scott Forstall. And so I interviewed with Scott Forstall. And uh, it was really funny because uh, I've, tell, I've told this story many times, but Forstall... Uh, uh, he called me into his office and had me sign an NDA. And I was like, well, you know, I'm like completely out of a job, you know, and this, this is my long NDA. And it's like, I don't care if I sign it. What, what the hell are they going to do to me? Take my job? I don't have a job. <laughs> um, so uh, I signed it and we sat there and talked. And Scott was asking all these weird questions. And, um, I, you know, it's, it suddenly dawned on me what he was driving at. Um, cause this was the system software group. This is the group that I want to, uh, work in. And he said, I, I said, are, are you asking me to build a web browser? And he just held up his finger. And he said, hold that thought. And he got on the intercom, called his administrative assistant in with another NDA uh, which uh, I had to sign. She witnessed everything else like that, triplicate, all that other kind of crap. She walks out. As soon as the door clicks shut, Scott turns around to me and says, yes. <laughs> so how would you do that? And so I immediately made something up, and uh, he bought it. And uh, f- a couple of weeks later, he hired me. And so yeah. you were hired to be the leader of the, the group then that would develop what became Safari. It wasn't called that probably. Yet. Oh, no, it wasn't called that then. So a, the, a glimmer, a glimmer in their eye at that point. And, yeah. and, and how many people uh, were on your team? I remember in Debug, you said you, I think you hired Ken Kashenda as, as yeah, one of yeah. the guys. That, that was one of my stipulations. He was going to go to another group, and Ken really wanted to go to that group. And I had to like violate my NDA and tell him what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, dumbass, you got to come over here and work on this. And he was like, really? You're really going to do that? And I got him fired up. And so I convinced Scott as one of the requirements, because Ken was like, he, 
you know, not only was he brilliant, well, he was also crazy, but he was brilliant, but he was like one of the hardest working people I'd ever met. I mean, he was just, he was a machine. Uh, and uh, he, he was also the world's nicest guy. I mean, in between the time we both got that job at Apple and a, uh, Easel was winding down, you know, just slowly augering into the desert floor at high speed. Um, Kim and I played a lot of golf on every cheesy fairway uh, in the valley because we had time to kill. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, so he spent a lot of time in the golf course, and, and he was he was a really great guy. His, his uh, wife and son were really nice too, and and Ken knows my uh, my son. He certainly played golf with him enough times. And so, then, how many people were on the initial team when you started on the project? Uh it was a very very small team. By the time Safari came out on January 7th of 2003. We started on January 25th of 2001. That's the start date because that's the day Ken and I started at Apple. Um, when we came out, I think we had eight, nine people was all. Uh, and uh, to do the whole thing, it, it was actually probably, let me count right now. It's like me, Ken, Richard Williamson. That was a, my, uh, our second hire, uh, Shelly Sheridan, who, uh, was QA. It was Chris Blumenberg. Uh, that's five. John Sullivan, six. Maciej Stoviak, uh, seven. Uh, Vicky, Vicky Murley. Was she eight or was she not eight? Uh, Darren Adler and David Hyatt. So that's nine. Nine? Is that nine or is that 10? I can't count. <laughs> They told me there was not going to be any math, Eric. So oh, right, right. That's why I agreed to do the podcast. Yeah, sorry about that. And so, so it was not very many people, and certainly not enough to do a, a web browser and a whole web engine, which is why you know we, uh, we co-opted an open source project, uh, uh, HTML and KJS projects. Right, right, which eventually became WebKit. Yeah, which people. eventually became WebKit. And so did you take to this new gig pretty well? Because um, the scope of this, I mean, Apple was still, I mean, considering the size of Apple today, back then it was not nearly the force it now is. But still, this is a oh, yeah, pretty big deal. Oh, yeah, to Cafe Max and get lunch and have it <laughs> right. a table out front. Those days are long gone. Right. But it's still like I, it had to have felt like a much bigger undertaking than what you had been doing previously. So how did that feel being kind of responsible for that? Or did you not have enough time to think about it? Because I assume you had a deadline or you had a target date and maybe you just had to focus on that instead of worrying about. Oh, there, there was so much pressure and I kept a lot of that from the team. There were so many times that we were just, we were just going to get cut or I just felt like I was going to get fired. You know, I, I mean, think about this. Like I'm working for Scott Forstall, who's, you know, just an absolutely brilliant engineer himself, not only uh, a, a visionary manager and just a, a workaholic psycho, but his boss is Bertrand Serlet. I mean, Bertrand Serlet, not only did he eventually run all of software, this is the guy who wrote Malloc in the OS. I mean, he wrote, uh, that's the kind of engineer. And who's his boss? Avi Tavanian. He's the guy who developed the mock kernel <laughs> right and who does he work for steve freaking jobs 
I mean, I would go to work every day thinking they're going to figure out I'm an idiot. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it does a lot to motivate and focus you. Uh, so I was like way too busy and there were way too many, you know, pressures. Plus, you know, as people started to come online and be briefed on the project, I had, you know, many uh, well-meaning, brilliant knucklehead come into my office and tell me how to do this because, you know, they knew their domain and they were experts in it, but they didn't know anything about web browsers. And I was, and that was actually until I was able to hire David Hyatt. That was the first person besides me that had ever actually worked on a web browser that worked on the project. To get the stupid thing done, I had to find the smartest people I could get, many of them from Easel that I knew. You know, Mache Stohoviak is like, he's a, He's a gill man from the planet Xenon, brilliant, right? Uh, but he, he didn't know it was impossible, right? Neither did Darren. Uh, considering the number of projects he's done with Andy, he should have caught on. But <laughs> they didn't know that you couldn't do this in a year and a half. I never told them that I was totally, you know, just totally feared for failure. What I did is I set the bar up here. This is what we're going to do. You know, I said it high and they're brilliant. They didn't know any better. So they did it. And, you know, it's, it's really, it's really thanks to them. And it's really thanks to people like Scott and, and Bertrand and Avi and Steve who believe that we could do it because there were many a day I didn't, but you never say that, right? You have to, um, You don't hear complaints about this, but this never worries me uh, when I see, especially, and this is very typical of young people go out and do something. I think to do this kind of thing, it takes an enormous amount of hubris and ignorance. Because if you knew all the pitfalls, you wouldn't do it. You'd never do it. Because you always say at the beginning, how hard could this be? Right? Because if, if we had not taken that same approach, we would have never done the iPhone either. Right. How hard can this be? <laughs> so um, I, you know, I, I am careful to not be critical of uh, people who go off and do these startups and make these uh, quixotic quests and stuff like that. Because I think in a way... You have to do that. As I get older, I like to be a little bit more informed, but um, uh, it, it's essential to do it. And to be perfectly honest, it's part of the adventure. You know, it's part of the rush. It's part of the thrill. Which is very much but, the spirit of the valley, too, like we were talking about, that kind of hacker yeah. culture, that building something from scratch that nobody has done before kind of thing, maybe a little bit. Yeah, but as I as I've gotten older... And I also try to tell other people, it's a Faustian bargain you make because there are entire years of my son's life that I don't have any memory of and he doesn't have any memory of me. How much do you think you were working in terms of hours, if you could put a number on it back then? I had uh, one of my friends uh, told me a story. This was uh, after Safari debuted. And he told me that, and he was one of the people who was actually briefed on what we were doing. 
and he told me he was not worried about the project anymore after this one time because he called my office one night. I forget when the hell it was. It was like 1030 with, and he called the number, uh, cause we didn't have cell phones back then cause the iPhone didn't exist. Right. Uh, and he called my number just to leave a message on me for the morning, uh, uh that I would get in the morning. And he called the number and I picked it up and I said, yeah. And he realized then the kind of commitment we were all making on this project, that I was actually there sitting at my desk at the phone at that time, late at night. And, you know, uh, I had, I just got into this terrible habit when I started the project. Ken Kashinda worked, uh, worked for me and he was just uh, an early riser. I guess it's spending too damn much time in Japan years ago. Um, House of the Rising Sun. He would get to, he would get to work at, you know, hours like 6 a.m. And, you know, I'd kind of like compromise with him and try to show up between 6.30 and 7. But I usually got to work between 6.30 and 7. And Richard Williamson, you know, he's from England. I guess he was still on uh, Greenwich time or something. And, uh, you know, he was a crack at noon boy, but he, he would work into the, the, uh, the wee hours. And so I needed to be around when both of my two top people were there. So I kind of like kept both of their hours, which was a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, certainly for the first 18 months of the project until we got out the door and then, um, uh, and for a while after that, because it was, it, we were not out of the woods when we went to beta by a long shot. And then, uh, and then Scott made my life even more complicated by giving me more stuff to do. So what was your title when you were in charge of the project for Safari? If you remember even, did, did you have an official, like, cause I suppose they didn't want people to know that you're working on Safari, but was it some like kind of generic internet sounding title or something? No, it, it didn't even have, our department didn't, uh, didn't even have a name. We weren't listed. Um, there were some tricks to hide us in oh, okay. the phone book and we had code names for our components in the, uh, world visible bug database and all sorts of other stuff. Oh, if wow. you had tried to, yeah, uh, it was, uh, I mean, my title was manager at the time. Okay. But they, but nobody knew manager of what manager of what, and we, you know, we had code names for, uh, for everything. And so, and that, that's very typical. I mean, you know, I talk about all the secrecy and every, everything and people go, Ooh, wow. And it's like, well, you wouldn't believe the kind of shit people did in the time of the iPhone, you know, five years later, like how crazy that was. So you get uh, promoted then and, and now you're responsible for more stuff. What got added to your uh, umbrella at that point? Uh, the first thing was uh, core services, uh, which is uh, a, a lot of low level uh, system stuff, networking. And we used a lot of the networking st uh, stuff and uh, sort of the core, core services team. And then I had uh, another small team added. And then I had uh, eventually mail address book, um, calendar um i'm gonna forget one of my teams and they're gonna be pissed at me uh, i don't know why I'm, it's on my about page on my website oh, sure look there donmelton.com okay no that's fair so basically you you've accumulate more and more people um under you 
And I imagine you are working more and more and maybe sleeping less and less. <laughs> Probably. Well, actually, actually, I uh, I went through a phase of like worrying and my wife worrying about my health, where I I had to like learn how to pace it. And the big thing I did was have people that work for me take on a lot of these responsibilities, get those managers up to speed, so ah, I not, okay. so I could like get down, you know, to the dull roar of a ten or twelve hour day, right? Not not this crazy stuff. Um, uh, and sometimes I was only in the office for, uh, only as much as eight hours, but you know, when you work at Apple, you're on all the time because Steve doesn't sleep. You never know. Neither did Bertrand. It seemed like, um, so you never know when you're going to get an email. Your weekends are not your own, you know, that kind of stuff. Was the expectation that you would reply to emails from Steve or Bertrand or and somebody else important pretty much right away? You know, Neaton Ganatra and I did a uh, podcast. Yes, which this. everyone should check out. <laughs> and uh, I, I, you know, I, I, if I, the way I talk about it, and Neaton and I worried about this afterwards, we we made it sound like some sort of sweatshop. But um, sure, you you didn't let an email linger, right? And when you had a response, you either had an answer or your response was. I'll get you an answer at this time, right? You learned how to do that, but you never let something linger. I remember my brother-in-law, I was probably four or five years into my job at Apple. My brother-in-law wanted uh, to go off and take a big family vacation with us too. They're really nice people. I love my in-laws. And go to um, the western outback of China, and, you know, spend <clears throat> like uh, two or three weeks just there. And it's like, dude, I can't do that, you know, because I'm, I'm not going to have a job when I get back. And he was like, he couldn't believe it. <laughs> it's like, you don't understand. I was like, you don't understand how this works, Jake. <laughs> it's like, you just, you just don't do that. And, it, and as, as much of an inconvenience it was for me and for someone like Neaton, you know, he and I both have our stories about the absolute torment, you know, our boss, uh, Scott Forstall went through. I mean, Scott never, never got a break. I mean, God, I wouldn't want his job. <laughs> and so, yeah, maybe there's a, a distinction that needs to be made. You're not saying it's a sweatshop and I'm not taking it that way, but at the same time, it's, it's people who have high expectations and take their work very seriously. That's the culture at Apple. It's about, as Steve said many times, it's about changing the world. And when you oh, yeah. are focused on on doing those things, which unquestionably Apple did over and over again, they're really you've got to be on the ball, <laughs> as it were. So it it makes sense to me. And I assume that you know, you, as you said, you were adding these teams and and you learn how to delegate, and and then maybe in one like parallel universe that kind of continues and nothing gets too crazy. But then in the universe that actually happened, the iPhone gets released or iOS is being developed. And I assume that, and I can't remember from the debug episode, your teams then got heavily involved in what was going on in terms of porting Safari to iOS. So did that amp well, things up for you again? Uh, yes and no. Basically what happened is one of my team members, Richard Williams, went off to lead that effort independently. Uh, and some of the other teams I had for some of the other apps got involved with uh, some of the applications there. And when the iPad came out later on, 
boy, did we dive deep into that one. Uh, but you never knew what you were going to get involved with there. There was no, you know, I, idle hands are the dev, devil's handiwork. You know, no, nobody believed right. idle hands at Apple. And uh, uh, there was just stuff going all the time. And it's not like we we didn't stop developing uh, Safari or some of the other big apps or make huge transitions with them. I mean, I remember when my department took over iCal, it was called back then. Basically, the following year, we completely rewrote the thing because it was a, uh, it wasn't really uh, designed to scale and things like that. And then we, uh, we made uh, big architectural changes and other things. And then we had to get involved in other parts uh, of the OS. And while Henri Lamoureux's team was uh, was getting overworked. We were taking on some other iOS tasks of his temporarily and switching out uh, uh, to give some of his folks a break so they could focus on some other things. I, I was always um, I was not big on ownership for the sake of ownership and making an empire. Which gets back to the power thing you mentioned that that wasn't yeah, your style. I, I that was never. I, I never really cared about that. I was like, how can we make the best product? And I was very fortunate to work with people who were not like egomaniacs either. Uh, I think there were some people in the company worrying about you know whether there's some huge power struggle going on between Henri and I. And I was like, I didn't give it. Henri didn't either. <laughs> so, <laughs> it wasn't anything between us. I mean, he's a really nice guy. So. Um, uh, that worked out well as far as I was concerned. Uh, in fact, when I did wind up retiring, I, I did have a conversation with Henri, uh, telling him, dude, you're, you were like spent. You really need to think about this retirement thing before, <laughs> before your head explodes because I'm worried about it. So, um, uh, but you know, all that, pace and everything else, as I've said many, many, many times, I do not miss it at all. So, uh, so that's I, a good, sorry, go ahead. I miss the people. I miss all those people. They're just such wonderful, wonderful people. Well, this list you've given already, just the people you've, you've talked about, I mean, are incredible figures in the community. And I'm sure there are tons more names that aren't necessarily known, but are just as great. So I can imagine. And when you have, I mean, how many people did you have underneath you in your part of the organization by the time you retired? I was supporting, uh, I think it was over a hundred and it was uh, close to 135, 140 people. And you know, once you hit about 75 people, you can't remember everybody's name. <laughs> Lucky. I remember the turning point for me was going to the restroom one afternoon and you do the thing where you you know, it's a men's room, right? So you go up to the porcelain things on the wall, you do your business and you, you look, you glance over and you see somebody, um, and do the nod. And it's like, okay, I'm going to go back and do my little business here. And then you go up to the sink and that person talks to you as you're, uh, as you're, uh, following good hygiene rules and washing your hands. And you realize, this guy works for me and I have no fucking idea what his name is. <laughs> and he obviously knows you. So it's like, yeah. he's kind of probably expecting like, you to say something. 
Yeah. So I, you know, I, I went back to my office and I looked him up in the directory because there are photographs in the directory. I was like, oh, crap. So I made it a point uh, not to go then and look him up, you know, because I didn't want to stalk him. <laughs> I just saw you in the bathroom and I thought, come on, because that's creepy. You know, that's that's HR time. They come and talk to you for that. But I made it a point uh, a few days later uh, or the following week to go by and and say hi, introduce myself. And uh, and I did a much better job with uh, new people than uh, at least some way in the first month or so that they're, they're there having a lunch with them, having a meal with them, being introduced to them. But it was just impossible for me to remember everybody's name. I mean, I just, I just couldn't do it. Well, I don't think many people can. Some people have that gift, but that's a lot of people. Yeah, I, I always sucked at, at, this is why I, I generally called everybody Luther. <laughs> Except uh, a fellow named Jim Luther who worked for me. I never called him Luther. Because, but you couldn't. It would break the bit. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it would only add to the confusion, so... <laughs> Well, we're getting to retirement finally, you know, an hour and 15 minutes into the, into the podcast. But what are some of the things that you're proudest of from your time at Apple looking back now? Um, well, certainly I'm, I'm proud of, uh, of uh, Safari and WebKit. I mean, that was the project that I went to Apple to start. And I really believed... You know, I make the jokes about, like, I think we're going to get fired. I don't think we're going to get it done on time. But I really believe that it was the right thing to do to uh, to get rid of the yoke that Microsoft had around Apple for their super slow uh, web browser. Uh, and I wanted to I wanted to make performance an important thing uh, in that project, and I wanted to create a culture of performance that I, I think had a big impact in Apple itself. And I'm very proud of that project and those. And I'm also very proud of a lot of the people that we hired, uh, managers uh, that came up from my organization, you know, people like Adele Peterson, uh, uh, just, uh, just really really fortunate to have uh, been able to have, you know, a small, a small impact on their careers. They were brilliant people anyway. They were, they were going to do well, but you know, I can lie to myself and say I had a big impact. <laughs> well, if you were part of bringing them in or, you know, part of the, the leadership and the team that says something. So, and maybe it goes back to like what you said too, about the people being one of those things that you do miss. Yeah. That makes a lot but, of sense. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I'm proud of all the projects uh, that we did. It's just that, Safari and WebKit was the first one I did, so I always have a, a little special, and I'm probably best known for that anyway. Yeah, that's that's <clears> definitely true. And I, some people in the audience might be tech people, especially if you end up tweeting this out, which would be appreciated probably. But uh, um, other people might not be, and I, I think that those people probably don't realize the barren wasteland that existed in internet browsers in 2001. <laughs> um, it was pretty grim. Um, Mozilla and then Firefox thing was starting to happen if I remember correctly. Uh, but, oh yeah, they almost, uh, Dave Hyatt, before I hired him, he almost, uh, did us in with, uh, Chimera. Ah, yes. I remember that browser. Yeah. And so, um, uh, that was, uh, I gave him a lot about it later on, but you know, I've known Dave for years, so he's a, <laughs> he's a brilliant guy. Uh, 
uh, you know, part part of the thing that I was, I'm not going to lie to myself. I'm not the greatest engineer in the world, not by a long shot. I'm slower than hell. Um, uh, I still don't know some basic computer science stuff that everybody else knows. Um, but I do know how to lead a team and I do know how to keep people focused. And I do know, uh, how to make them believe in themselves and believe in what we're doing. Um, and I, I was, I was in the right place at the right time where those particular skills of mine could be leveraged. It was what was needed. Being the smartest person was not required of me, thank God, because I'm not, um, all these other people are much smarter, much, much better engineers than, than I was. And I'm just thankful that they, they trusted me to lead them. Uh, that was, that is the thing I feel so good about. And frankly, I feel great about that. I had a boss like Scott Forstall who was a complete nut, um, uh, sometimes uh, difficult to work with, but one thing Scott, uh, or two things that Scott did was uh, he always trusted me and he always supported me. And you can't do better with a boss than that. He was a great guy. Was that something that you tried to do with your own direct reports? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, I certainly tried to manage down more than Scott did because... A lot of a lot of people gave Scott grief because he didn't you know didn't spend as much time coddling people. But frankly, uh, Scott's big job was being you know speaker to Steve, right? He was uh, um, he was the person who you know interpreted what the prophet said, uh, or the prophet who interpreted what the Lord said. <laughs> Something like a, that, yeah. Yeah, and that's a that's a more than full time job. So, uh, uh, and he knew that, and he, uh, uh, and it never, it never bothered me. But the other thing you have to remember, you know, you were talking about how Apple is really, you know, back in two thousand one, basically when Steve came back, you know, everybody had written Apple off. It's a dinky little company. Not very many people there. They were making the Bondi uh, iMacs, which were doing well, but they were still laughed at in the industry. And uh, uh, and a lot of these people that are, you know, titans in the business, uh, they were just, um, you know, they were just ordinary, uh, ordinary folks, you know, back then. And uh, but as things progressed you have to understand even back then they had, they were very intense personalities. I, and it, it only got more intense later on. I was just told people, you know, it's a lot like working in a nuclear reactor and, you know, and if you don't develop a thick skin, you know, you're just basically going to die around these luminaries. <laughs> and, the one great thing about working for Steve Jobs or working that closely with Steve, uh, certainly so many times, is I got to tell you, nothing bothers me anymore. I nobody can intimidate me. <laughs> I mean, I always think, 
you know, when a person's trying to swing it around, it's like, oh, God, you're really chicken shit compared to Steve. <laughs> you have no idea. You have no idea. And so I, I, I'm always thankful for that because it, 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 it gives you a sense of calm uh, uh, later on, not much, not much ruffles your uh, feathers. So, well, everybody should check out your blog at donmelon.com. You have a great story about Steve um, commemorating his passing. So, people should definitely check that out. It's uh, it's great. Um, when did you finally start seriously thinking about retirement? Because you're mentioning the pace, you were talking about health a little bit and trying to to scale it back. But when did you actually finally start thinking I need to make a change? or I've done enough, or whatever it was? I think it was bubbling up in my mind, but what really made me seriously think about it was Bertrand Sorley retiring. And he cold-jumped me in our one-on-one with that, uh, uh, that he was retiring. I was, <laughs> I was like, I guess I wasn't paying attention. I was like one of the only people who didn't realize that, well, it was only known for like about a day and a half, but... Uh, through uh, the upper echelon, but uh, he broke it to me on that day. And I was like, wow, because I never thought Bertrand would retire. And I thought to myself after, after we had lunch, we were doing our one and one, uh, one, and one at the lunch uh, when Bertrand told me. And I thought afterwards, I thought, damn, if Bertrand can retire, I can retire. What about retirement? What would that be like? Uh, what do I need to retire? You know, because I was, um, you know, I, I've always been growing up poor. I, you know, it's not like the I'm not like the kind of person who, when they first got money in their pocket, they went out and bought you know, uh, uh, sailboats and airplanes and yachts and. Uh, and you weren't at Netflix at uh, not Netflix, sorry, Netscape at IPO time and buying a Ferrari or anything like some of the people right. that you were well, later, I, I, so you missed out on that. Yeah, I, I came after the uh, uh, IPO. I wasn't a mozillionaire, so I learned how to pace myself. So I thought, well, maybe. And I hadn't really thought about it. Like, I'm, you know, what kind of money do you do you need to retire for? One thing, because I, I, I thought about my family. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, and then I thought about what I want to do, you know, what was there left for me to accomplish? I mean, I could see some things I could accomplish, but the problem was, is I wasn't as passionate about it as I was before. I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure it was worth the trouble to get the things done that I wanted to do. Uh, you know, cause it's a, Apple's a big company and it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of people making decisions. You don't really get your hand on the wheel like you think you do. Sure. And even if the people at the top don't get their hand on the wheel. Like <laughs> well, and do. it was a lot bigger by the time you were contemplating retirement 10 years later than when you started yeah. a lot bigger. Yeah. Uh, and, um, I thought, um, you know, I'm not sure about that. And I, I didn't really make up my mind until uh, see, Bertrand sprung that on us. I think it was in April. Uh, and I didn't really make up my mind until about six months later. And then I sort of plotted it for a few months. And then I sprung it on Scott, I think, in January. 
So you um, you sat on it for a while, and I assume you talked to your wife about it and figured out the oh, money yeah. the money side of things, and uh, yeah, to see if we could afford it. And uh, Alice was like, "We got to pay off the house," and so pay off the house so we don't have that hovering over our heads. Sure. And, and then decide how we can um, decide how we can live. It, it it's not like I was poor, by the way. It's not like I'm like you know, um, taking, um, uh, retirement money from the government early or something to do it. Uh, no, no. But it, I mean, there's a difference too. You're not talking about, uh, like, uh, whatever senior vice president level. Yeah, yeah, and stuff. You know, there's a, there's a sliding scale, I assume at Apple, like right. all companies. So, um, but, and you were relatively young too, when you made this decision, like in your fifties, you don't have to put a number on it, but I was 55. Okay. Right? And so and that's I'll, I'll be I'll be sixty this year. So okay, some uh, scale on that. And uh, so I also thought, you know, it's kind of cheeky to retire at fifty five. But the other thing I was thinking about, uh, my father uh, passed away during the nineties. He did get to see um, me have some success, certainly in Netscape, and and make a really good living. And he did get to meet his grandson before he went. But he died when he was only 70. And my wife's father retired in probably less than two years after he retired. He died, you know, just health reasons and whatever. And my wife was like, you know, maybe you want to in enjoy life, look at your family. Maybe we want you around a little bit more. And so, uh, she actually became supportive, more supportive of it. Although she really didn't want me around the house that much, uh, more supportive <laughs> of it, uh, thinking about it in those terms. Cause she, she was very sad about losing her own dad and, you know, he'd worked so hard his whole life and he, he had so little of his own retirement to enjoy. And so, and to see his grandkids and stuff like that. And so she was like, sure, retire when you're 55. Well, and like you said, Apple isn't really one of those companies where you can be in a position like you were and, and kind of half-ass it. You know, you're, that's not the place. Like you're that's not gonna exactly do that. right. I, and I couldn't, I couldn't half-ass it. I couldn't half-ass the work. And more importantly, I can't half-ass it for the people who depended on me. They deserve better than that. It's the people who deserve the most. They deserve to be looked after. And it is a it is a never ending job that way to look after all the people. Uh, you know, you you have your managers who do that kind of stuff, but you are. I'm not kidding when I say you. You know, you go to bed thinking about the job, and you get up, waking up thinking about the job, and that's what it is. And um, uh, if you talk to any of the people who work for me, worked for me, who are managers now, they'll go, yep, Gramps, that's what it's like. Uh, but they're, they're willing to do it. They still have head, you know, they still have more headroom. They still have other things they got to explore. And I just thought it was uh, selfish of me to stick around and maybe Brown knows for vice presidency or something like that. Something I didn't really want. Um, and and not do my job to the level and block them from going where they wanted to go. So because I didn't care. I mean, to, to me, 
you know, I've got a really big ego, but it's not that kind. It's a different kind of big <laughs> So it's like <laughs> that kind of shit just, it was like, uh, is just lost on me uh, in terms of that kind of competitiveness. I mean, I had a lunch with a guy who uh, uh, used to work for me who's uh, now gotten promoted past the level I was at. And I was like, woohoo, you know. And when I had lunch with him, I was like, okay, let's plot, let's plot your, uh, your takeover of, you know, the next level, you know, like game theory type stuff. That kind of thing amuses me. <laughs> Sometimes he worries about me, but. Sure. Uh, so, you know, that was great. And people worried that I, and I don't know why, I just think it's so amazing. They all be worried, like, Gramps, you're going to be dead in six months. You know, you're not going to have anything to do. You're going to be bored. You're going to be begging for your old job back. And I was like, nope, that's not going to happen. And you knew that even then when you were making this decision, you weren't afraid of that at all? No, not at all. Because I'm an incredibly lazy man. And I'm not only lazy, I'm incredibly boring too. So uh, this was not a worry for me. And, you know, as being a nerd kid for a long time, I've, you know, I've spent, you know, a couple of decades living inside my own head anyway, in my own imagination, creating characters and everything else like that. I never get bored, Eric. I just, I, if I ever get bored, I just fall asleep. <laughs> and then I wake up in the morning with, you know, a new idea or something I want to find out about or, uh, you know, experiment with or a conversation I want to have with somebody and, Boredom has never, never been my problem. And I totally did not miss the, uh, I missed the people, but I didn't miss the concept of minions. Actually, I did kind of miss having an administrative assistant because my wife gave me the, the slap, uh, that week reminding me that I was not her, uh, well, <laughs> I, she was not my administrative assistant. And so... <laughs> You get really dependent upon uh, those people. So everybody who's been one of my admins in the past, you are just such wonderful people. <laughs> my wife and I are watching uh, Mad Men together. I've seen it many times myself, multiple times uh, all the way through, but she and I are watching together. And actually that thought it kind of occurred to me uh, that, boy – it would be nice having a secretary who is doing your Christmas shopping and placing calls for you and doing all these other things that, you know, Don Draper's uh, various secretaries do for him on the show. That thought occurred to me this week. So I think I understand what you're talking about. That, oh, um, yeah. Just, it, just someone nice. to keep your life. Exactly. Organized. In order. Yeah. In order and organize all your meetings and stuff like that. And so I, I, I did miss that. But all the other stuff, the power, you know, the absolute power. Uh, I, I think it, uh, it just totally didn't matter to me, uh, after that. And, uh, and I got, I got on with the business of, uh, of being a retired person. Was it weird at first not going to work every day at Apple? Uh, if you can remember back to what it was like <laughs> right afterwards. It was a little odd but you know i have taken a vacation before it didn't get odd until the end of the second week because that's about the longest sure, yeah i've ever been away from the office was two weeks i actually got a two-week vacation once and once it hit there it was like there was this little moment where oh my god it's for real 
but it wasn't like that the the uh, the first day. Uh, but I'd already, you know, been amusing myself. I'd already, you know, had two side projects going on with some things I was tinkering with, and and I was musing about some other stuff. And I, I'm constantly, you know, on the phone or on Skype talking to other people. And you know, other people wanted to have lunch with me, and there were um, other people wanted me to. You know, now that you've left Apple, you can join this startup kind of conversation. Oh gosh, and, I bet that goes well for them. Uh, <laughs> and you, but I get a lot of free lunches out of it. Well, that's true, but I can't imagine they're getting a lot of uh, uh, job acceptance from you. I can't imagine I, that would be exactly zero. <laughs> that's what I thought. And so, but it was nice to see them, you know, and tell sure. uh, tell them. And and, uh, and the other thing that I. I started doing was a lot of people started contacting me after that, after they realized, well, he's not going to, you know, he's, he's not going to do the next big startup. He's not going to ride a unicorn into the billions. Cause I, I could care less, um, is, uh, they would contact me, you know, for advice and it certainly wasn't coding advice. Like who the hell would ask me, you know, coding advice. Uh, it was, uh, some of the folks who started out either as engineers and went to other companies and became managers or uh, were managers at Apple and had went to other companies and were had questions or whatever. And so I had a lot of fun, you know, basically meeting with people and actually trying not to give them bad advice, mostly by just being a sounding board and letting them... Because sometimes the most important thing you can do is you can be an AI program, right? You just repeat questions back to people in, in a sense. This is, it's like a kind of a, th- a therapy. So you, you let them arrive at the answer. You, you guide them to answering their own questions. Um, and because a lot of times what they want is they want affirmation of what they've already figured out, but they, they haven't quite articulated. And so I would have a lot of conversations with, uh, like that with people, uh, on and off. That, that still happens. There's wonderful people too. I mean, I really like these folks. You're definitely somebody who seems like you thrive on relationships and being retired has given you more and more time than t- for relationships with people outside of Apple. It sounds like. Oh yeah. And I, I've been able to spend more time with, uh, my in-laws who I dearly love, uh, spend more time talking to my sister, uh, on Skype, which we're using right now. We talk all the time. Spend more time uh, getting to know my neighborhood. Um, having um, one thing happened after I retired: our our two dogs that we'd have for uh, one over a decade and another one close to a decade came to their end of their lives, and uh, 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 that was a real trying time for the family. But my wife told me, she said, "You know, it was actually good you retired because you were there." You know, with them laying on the floor, helping sure. take care yeah. of them. You know, uh, which you couldn't have done if you were at Apple. Still, probably no, at I, least I not have, nearly I, to extent. Yeah, I, I, I would have missed that time. And they were just uh, dogs are not people, but they're persons. Do you know what I mean, Eric? Yeah, I think so. And so, I treasure those times I got to spend with them toward the end of their lives. And then when we stupidly got another dog just a few months after uh, Penny passed, what the hell were you we thinking? Uh, my wife and I were already, you know, trying to get some exercise uh, walking around the hills here, but 
when you have a dog, you walk everywhere, especially a, a puppy, and you 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 know every person with a dog within like a couple of mile radius after a while. And so uh, made a lot of friendships that way, a lot of new people, talked to a lot of people, uh, developed a, uh, a taste for wine, which I had a, a little of before, but uh, uh, indulging ourselves by joining various wine clubs. And uh, my wife and I stupidly bought a house in the Sierras and in wine country up there and so we indulge ourselves a little bit more. So we, we pop back and forth between this house and that house. And As she tells you that you need to pay off the other house before he can retire. <laughs> Let's go buy another <laughs> house. Another house. Uh, it's not, it's, it's a much smaller house, but uh, yeah. And, uh, and so we did that and we, uh, uh, we made, you know, friends up there and, uh, spent some time with a few causes up there. That, that was near where I'm not sure uh, you probably heard about all the fires in California. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. One of those, uh, was just coming up over the hill to our new home that we just bought the year before oh, gosh. <laughs> when, uh, uh, when wind, good fortune saved us, uh, from that. And by the way, um, the, the, the wonderful things I've had in my life, it's not through, any skill or uh, destiny or specialness of my own, a lot of it's just the same fortune it takes to either win or lose at the lottery. I mean, it's just it, it's just being lucky. It's being at the right place at the right time. I, I think to a certain extent you can make your luck by giving yourself opportunities and not being a jerk and paying attention, but... A lot of it's, you know, being at the right place at the right time. A lot of it's listening to my wife who told me, take the job at Apple. You'll be happier. So she knew. That's, that's yeah, good knew. credit right there. Yeah. Oh, she's, she's always, I mean, without my wife, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'd be, you know, in the gutter somewhere <laughs> about like a raccoon looking for food, you know. So she's very, very fortunate to have met her. So have you then developed kind of a routine together now that you're retired and you spend maybe a certain time at the other house and you do these things and you go for walks and whatever, and has that kind of helped in terms oh, of retirement? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you have to have a routine when you have a dog. Uh, this is going to sound stupid, but it's not because you need the routine because you're retired and you do it from going crazy. You do, you have the routine because the dog requires a routine. Just like a little person, a little kid, yeah. like you said. Yeah, yeah. Kid. And so, I mean, I get up in the morning, not because I set an alarm, but that's when the dog gets up. <laughs> sure. To do his business and he's got to have his breakfast. And uh, we go on our walk when it's time, you know, when the dog lets us know if we haven't already gone, it's time. And, um, uh, in, in fact, I go to bed at night at the time when the dog, that's when he wants to go inside his crate and have the banky covering it so he can sleep soundly. It's really weird, but uh, a lot of the routine is simply is simply that. And, uh, uh, and Alice, uh, it was funny when, uh, uh, not because they died, but uh, when our other two dogs were very, very ill, I was 
I was not spending a lot of time working on my little coding projects or writing projects or whatever. I was spending time up, you know, on the living room floor upstairs. Our house is weird. You enter from the upstairs instead of uh, the lower floor uh, because of the way the hill and the street is designed. And uh, I was spending a lot of time in the living room on the couch sitting in the floor with one or the other of the dogs when they were being sick or sitting in the bedroom in one of their pens or whatever. And I was just underfoot and with my wife constantly. And after they had passed, it, it was like a few days. And we had gotten over uh, maybe a week and a half, we'd gotten over the shock and that you have with that kind of loss. And my wife said, you can go back down to your office. <laughs> Because she had enough of me, and so uh, so we uh, we spend time together, but we also spend time apart. It's it's important for sanity. And you have your projects, like you said, you've worked on these video transcoding scripts, which people can check out. You've you've done various podcasts where you talk about them, especially your yeah. Melton show with Renee Ritchie, and um, listen to you talk about your interest in and in doing things that you say nobody who has sanity should ever do, which is transcoding oh, yeah. video obsessively. <laughs> oh yeah, it's uh, somebody asked me. Somebody asked me how often I transcode, and I say incessantly, if not more often. <laughs> uh, I don't know why. I, you know, people like me, and it's like a lot of people in the business, if I don't have the job at Apple, I mean, one of the things I had to do when I retired, I probably needed to do it before I retired. I went to the dentist, and the dentist had said, you're, you're, you're losing all the enamel on your teeth. You're grinding your teeth. I, I have to wear a guard in my mouth at night. I'm almost 60 years old. I'm having to wear a guard in my mouth at night like a freaking teenager uh, because I grind my teeth because I'm constantly obsessing, you know, about things like that. I, it's just, you know, it's a type A personality thing, right? It's the, it's, it's the crazy person thing. But that's where it's so interesting that you you have adjusted so all the retirement because one would maybe expect that that wouldn't be the case. That being a type A person, you would really miss having the, all the things that you got out of your job at Apple. Oh, uh, maybe. Yeah, for some people, I think I, I I don't think it's possible for them to retire for that reason. For me, I just transfer it to other things. Right. right? So you that's, take that energy and that focus and, and whatever and put it into the dog, into the transcoding, into these other projects and, and all the other things you're talking about. You know, worrying about when this next wine shipment is coming in. Oh, yeah, totally. To shift the things around. <laughs> Obsessively and, tracking it online, refreshing yeah, the page. Yeah, kind of you know, it's stupid stuff. Uh, and that's uh, that's what life really is. It's a lot of stupid, pointless things with wonderful, wonderful people, if you're fortunate, separating all those, uh, if you're fortunate to be uh, around people. And I, uh, you know, my parents would drive you crazy in some ways, but I so miss them both. Uh, they were just, uh, they set me up in life to succeed, uh, made me believe I could, I could do things. Uh, it was the same sort of con job I pulled on people who worked on me. Uh, uh, you know, from them to uh, my sister, uh, friends over the years, coworkers over the years, so many wonderful coworkers over the years that have helped me. I was very fortunate. And when I 
when I retired and was first thinking about writing, you know, I had wonderful people like Jim Dalrymple of uh, Loop, uh, of the Loop, uh, give me advice. Um, uh, people like uh, Rene Ritchie and Guy English giving me a a forum to blather on pointlessly <laughs> about things. So. Which I'm more than happy to do, obviously, as well. But they do a much better job of it with a much bigger audience, I'm sure. But those... Those episodes are fantastic, and everybody should check them out. Uh, you should uh, do the podcast more often, uh, the Melton uh, podcast. Uh, yeah, they. I, I would, you know, I'm. I do it at the at the whim of Renee. Whenever Renee's ready to do one, he'll tell me, and I'm sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I'll, I'll talk about that. But uh, ever since, uh, ever since he got promoted in, in his <laughs> yeah. job. That poor beggar. He he, he must not is, sleep. I don't think so. He is one of the hardest working people I know, and he's 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 just such an incredible typist too. I mean, uh, I I was kidding him about this about just the output he had last year. It's like uh, you know now with these increased in responsibilities, if you actually type that much in 2016, your hands are going to fall off. <laughs> Because he has managed to do, he not only does he do, do all this stuff with iMore and all the writing, these lengthy, lengthy articles. He does. He sits on the Debug podcast with um, uh, Guy English, as you said, and your podcast. When you manage to do that, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how he keeps up with everything. I, I, I don't want to know. I'm, I'm busy off uh, with a glass of wine. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. All the hard work. So, do you feel like you'll ever consider doing a full time day job again, or is that that totally passed for you? Obviously, you can't see the future, but do you think it could happen? No. <laughs> Good answer. That's a full <laughs> quote right there. <laughs> no. It's like, let me let me be clear about that. Uh I do have people ask me that from time to time. It's like, boy, that's that's not gonna be that's not ever gonna happen. I I will um I'm happy to advise or get involved in a peripheral way with someone's new big venture. But I do not want to be on the spinning wheel anymore. It's not. It's not for me. Now that you've been off of it, especially, you know that more than ever before. Probably. Uh, it's. Uh, it's. Yeah. This is. Uh, this is the good life. I'm not going to screw that up, and I'm going to enjoy. You know, I had a scare last year with the uh, atrial fibrillation, and it made me much more. You know, I, I did my first ambulance ride where you know you think you actually might be dying. You know, all those thoughts go through your head. And uh, it it has made me so appreciative of what I have. I, I am not a kind of person who uh, obsesses about, you know, I got to I got to have the the new toy or the new car or whatever. I mean, it's still what is it? It's May of 2016 and I still don't own an Apple watch. <laughs> me neither. I've, I've held off so far. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty good. That probably helps uh, keep you comfortable in retirement, not uh, chasing that kind of stuff. The Ferraris, like we talked about, which you'd probably yeah. just crash anyway with all that wine. Yeah, it's, that's uh, no good. My son is a much better driver. I'll get him a Ferrari. I'm not going to drive the damn thing. So You do need to whisper in somebody's ear at Apple to tell them they need to restore uh, target display mode to the iMac. If I can get you to do anything for me, it's that because the you new know, ones don't do it. 
and you know, I suspect, and my uh, my Retina iMac doesn't do it either. I suspect it's the uh, it's the Retina stuff. It's the yes, big wacky, I think it is too. Uh, thing there. In fact, I um, uh, the kind. Um, it's about once a week, once every other week, I write a scathing email to one of my coworkers at Apple about something that bugs me. <laughs> and then I, I get the email done. It's in a draft and then I just delete it. <laughs> it's not worth it. No. <laughs> Those poor I guys, right? I don't want to be that guy. Uh, I've only done it. You know, I've only pulled my leverage uh, two times since I retired. Once was actually recently with uh, the big screw up with iOS that was bricking iPads because I, I actually texted Craig Federighi one night because my wife was about ready to kill me because she couldn't play Angry Birds <laughs> on her iPad. And, um, and uh, Craig made the connections and the problem was fixed uh, uh, you know, like, uh, an hour later. So remotely, <laughs> do you remember what the other problem was that you wrote? Oh about? yeah. The other problem was just buying the iPhone six plus. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't get through Apple's website to get it work and stuff like that. And I actually did the thing. I, I told myself I wouldn't do it. You know, I whined about it on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, I did find out that Apple pays attention to what I say and what I write a lot more than I thought. Uh, and, uh, so someone from, uh, corporate in Austin contacted me and I had the iPhones the next day, (laughs) (laughs) which they were completely out of at the local store. Oh, that's, that's impressive. That's good. Those are both legitimate. I think, uh, keeping the wife happy is important. I actually had a, if I, if I had Craig Federighi's number, I would have texted him uh, this week when my wife had to take a cab because her Uber app crashed on her, uh, iPhone (laughs) five. Wow. Not that that's Craig Federighi's problem, but you know, I, I get the the point because she texted me from the cab and said, "This is terrible. My Uber app crashed." And uh, yeah, so I'm trying to get her to get an she, SE. She but. didn't. Uh, yeah, she didn't have the uh, the problem that just got fixed in the software update week before last. I don't think so. No. Uh, okay, because I I got the inside story from one of my uh, my homies on how that happened. It was pretty hysterical, but I won't tell that story. Oh, okay. Uh, Fair enough. I I do I do know that they they read what I write on the blog and uh and I think um, PR would prefer it if I shut up. And I know that they've asked uh, one of my former employees that. Apple to talk to me about that. And he told me about it afterwards. He said, he said, he told him, he said, like, you know, number one, I'm not going to tell Don that because he's one, he's my friend, right? I'm not going to tell him to like knock it off because it's, you know, it's unsanctioned. It's not like I'm saying the wrong thing. It's just unsanctioned. Right. It's not on message. One, he's my friend. And two, he wouldn't do it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Should I like burst out laughing because He's, he's quite right about that. Uh, but I know that uh, a lot of people over there, and we're talking VP level, are going right on, right on cramps. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt so about they, it. They, they don't care, but they, you know, it makes a few people nervous. But I, uh, you know, you learn after a while how to um, censor yourself 
and I don't, I, I, not the four letter word thing. Cause I, I can't do that. You should never, by the way, folks, you should never allow me around your children. My <laughs> wife and my sister-in-law and my, always told me, stop doing that around the nieces and nephews. Uh, no, it's the watching what you say. I, you know, I just don't want to bite the hand that fed me. Oh, that's, sure. That's just bad. It continues me. to feed. I'm sure you still have Apple stock, right? I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. 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 And uh, I actually, uh, last year, I actually uh, got a, 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 Actual cash grant for a um, uh, what's it called? A um, not a patent, right? Or patent? yeah, a patent no way through a patent that came through. So, and I I had to sign paperwork on another one the other day and ship it off to the lawyers on another patent. I'm still my name is still on patents after all this time. I've oh, been away for over four years, Eric, and. They're still filing paperwork on patents that I'm on. I love what it. A, if you Google uh, Justia Patents, you can find your name and see exactly what's oh, going I, on. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have before, and it's like, oh, God. Oh, that's awesome. That's good legacy being, to have. Being inv- involved in open source for so many years before working at Apple and then being involved in open source now. Oh, by the way, speaking of uh, speaking of that, you know, it's kind of embarrassing to do the patent thing, but being involved with open source. The people who work with me on my little dink-ass open source project – Greatest people in the world. It's just so nice. So many nice people out on the internet. Uh, and I take it so seriously. I drive my wife crazy on this because I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be driving. I'll hear the beep in my phone. I'll pull over to the side of the road. And it's like, honey, I got, I got to do some tech support here. Uh, <laughs> the, guy, the guy in Germany has a question again. And so as I, I, you know, on the transcoding thing, it's like I'm the shell answer man for that on the internet. So I, I take that very seriously. The open source community is amazing. Like the time and energy that people pour into these projects. And you are one of those people, obviously, because you've maintained this project by yourself. Uh, it's incredible. And it's it's so cool. And it, it kind of restores faith in humanity, I think, a little bit. Uh, yeah. And, and if you're going to do that and you're going to put something out there and people are going to use it, you know, it's like any job you have, you have to take it seriously. And uh, it, it is worth your your sanity and the soundness of your own soul to realize your part in that, right? And appreciate that people actually use something you wrote and want to improve it uh, the best way they can. Sometimes... Not the best way, but you know, you work with them anyway. On well, that. they care enough to have an opinion, which says a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and uh, like I was telling one guy, uh, you know, he was he was being apologetic that somehow that like I was he was wasting my time or whatever. It's like, oh hell no, you know, keep arguing with me. This is fun. What are you kidding? Don't stop. Uh, and uh, and. You know, just the for the most part, you know, there are trolls out in the internet. There are plenty of them, uh, but the vast majority of the people I've met online have been very, very nice people. I'm actually surprised. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let you go here shortly. But uh, one final so, question: so I have. We've been at this in two hours now. I'm two like, hours. Yep, we're approaching debug about- length, <laughs> yeah. which has been great. Um, if if somebody was in a similar position to the one you were in when you were thinking about uh, hanging it up, retiring, what would you tell them? 
do you have any advice that you could give somebody who said, come to you, hey, Don, I'm thinking about retiring. What would you tell me? Um, one, the, there's the first thing is make sure you can actually, the stupid stuff, you can afford to retire, uh, the, that you have the means to do it. The second thing is make sure that the, the family that you have, the support system uh, you have, will support that decision because you may still do it even if they don't support it, but that's important. The people who care about you, they may know something about you that you don't know. You know what I mean? So for example, in your case, maybe if you weren't the type of person who could actually give this up, they might know that and say, I hope you have something else you're going to do with your time because you can't sit around the house pottering all day or whatever. And you might not realize that about yourself. I think that's what you're saying. Exactly. Because a lot of people... A lot of people are blind to that kind of thing about themselves. That's why you have a support system. And the third thing is um, you have to ask yourself, uh, uh, are you ready for that terrible responsibility of being a leech on the ass of society, (laughs) not being a contributing member in a way? are Are you ready to give up all that power and authority, depending on whether you have power and authority or whatever? Uh, or is there another mark that you want to make? Is this just, is retiring an excuse for changing jobs? It, um, uh, if it is, well, just change your job, you know, go, go get another job. Don't retire because you're not going to be happy retired. You have to make sure that you're ready for, (laughs) it's kind of weird. You, 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 you have to be ready for the lack of responsibility. Um, because if not, you're, you're just going to go crazy. Uh, you're not going to be happy, uh, unless you can, uh, handle that. You, you have to know something about your own identity. Uh, you better be comfortable in your own skin or because you get to, you get to realize you're spending a lot more time in it when you, you don't have a full-time job. Because frankly, when you have a full-time job, you're too damn distracted to notice a lot of this other shit. Sure. I swear to God, uh, being retired, there is a lot of stuff that now just aggravates the hell out of me, Eric, that I never even thought about before. Because <laughs> now you have the time and the bandwidth to be aggravated <laughs> yeah, by it. Be aggravated by it. I, I, For example? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, just just little things, you know. Um, little things cascade into huge ones now if you're not careful when you retire because when you've been managing budgets and the millions of dollars and having to do, you know, go through multiple focal reviews, hiring crises, uh, big deadlines on, on projects that uh, have too many features, uh, you know, the sink in the kitchen backs up and, you know, you're ready to pass out. I mean, it's just, uh, you have to be careful not to blow these things out of proportion, right? To make all these little problems into big ones, because that's the only way you know how to deal with problems. Sure. And everything's right. relative. And, and before exactly. on your scale of relativity, you had the million dollar budgets and the hiring and all these other things. And then all of a sudden, if that's all gone, your scale of relativity changes dramatically. That makes perfect right. sense. That's tough. Yeah, and, uh, and you have to be careful or these things impact you too much. So, and I have, you know, 
some of that has happened to me. I will admit that I'm that much of a loser that, uh, but thankfully a little introspection and my wife nagging me, uh, reminding me. <laughs> <should say> <laughs> right. That's a nice, yep. Yep. Edit, edit, remind. <laughs> yeah. Remind me, uh, that, you know, that I'm just full of shit and, uh, shouldn't worry about that kind of stuff. But it, seriously, it's, uh, unless you're willing to do that, you shouldn't retire. Uh, have something, have something to, uh, to do, figure out a way to make a contribution, uh, make something better, uh, do, do something for friends or family, you know? Cause you figure have the gift of time is. finally, <laughs> yeah, whereas yeah. for so long when you're working a full-time job, you think about it, that's a lot of your life, especially if you have a job like the, like you did at Apple where the time commitment is huge. Yeah. And one of the things I've tried to do is uh, try to go back and and get to know my son better. Uh, and the irony is, he's you know he's finally moving out of the house. <laughs> right, right. Just as, just like I'm hanging out with you now. Sorry, Dad. I got my own life to start. Kind of. Thing, yeah. But. And so, and then you know, coming to terms with that. And so, uh, that's what I would tell people. But uh, uh, the only scary thing about retirement frankly has been all the damn paperwork that's the nuisance of it <laughs> you know it was like thank god for the affordable care act uh because i was about ready to have a heart attack just about all the complications of having insurance oh, you know, sure. post uh post retirement um but all the other uh stuff the uh, stuff that you have to do i made a, a statement on twitter i think it was a couple of months ago uh it was around the four-year anniversary of leaving it's like you know, I don't know how people with full-time jobs deal with all this crap anymore because it's sure eating a lot of my time and I'm retired. <laughs> Does your son like having you around more? Does his, has he responded uh, to, to that by kind of doing his side of the relationship? Uh, yes and no. It's tough being a 20-something we, kid. I mean, yeah, I get it. And, and you know, he he's doing the same thing I was doing at that age, struggling to find out you know, what his identity is, what his career is and how to get separate, how to be separate from parents, but not cut them off. Sure. And, and that's a hard thing, but you know, he's old enough now, you know, he's, he's past the Mark Twain point where, uh, you know, Mark, Mark Twain wrote that, you know, when he was 18 years old, he thought his dad was the biggest idiot he'd ever met. And by the time he was 25, he was surprised at how much the old man had learned. In those few years. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. So, he, you know, he, he knows like, I'm not an idiot uh, now, but that doesn't mean that, yeah, you know, it's easy. Uh, every, everything's easy or I'm always going to be the most, you know, reasonable person in the world. But, you know, my, one of my goals in life is that my son grows up and and somehow he's less of an asshole than I am. And so I will have improved the world. So if I can do that. I think that's a great place to, to end. Thank you so much for your time, Don. I really appreciate it. I think this is an interesting perspective and it's a great story. So thanks again and have a good rest of your night. Oh, it was my pleasure. And, uh, and thank you for asking, Eric. I enjoyed your questions and the time with you tonight. All right. Good night, Don. Good night.